This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Amy Dunphy. Now, China has retreated somewhat from its zero COVID policy, which brought people onto the streets and there are tens of thousands right across China in a very, very rare sign of dissent from the people against the Chinese authorities. However, there has been some give in the policy, which was linked very much to President Xi Jinping. And now... They have relaxed the rules. There is, of course, more COVID around and long lines of people looking to be treated. But today, we're going to talk about China with Ian Williams. Ian is a very distinguished journalist indeed with a vast experience of Asia, China in particular. He was a foreign correspondent for Channel 4 News based in Russia and then Asia from 1992 to 2006. He joined NBC News as Asia correspondent from 2006 to 2015, based in Bangkok and Beijing, and covered all of China. He is also an author. His latest book, The Fire of the Dragon, China's New Cold War, was published on the 4th of August. And he also wrote a fascinating book, China's New Tyranny, a study of the surveillance state. And last Sunday in the Sunday Times, he had a piece about China's surveillance state that was very, very frightening. Ian, good morning to you and thank you very much for joining us. I want to talk to you today about the Belt and Road Initiative, which is something not many lay people know about or know about in any depth. But before we do, There's a fascinating man called Jimmy Lai, who was a publisher, a very successful one in Hong Kong, and the Chinese have arrested him, and they've charged him, and he's due to stand trial. He was thought, was he not, being in Hong Kong, being very wealthy, to be almost immune from this kind of treatment. But the Chinese decided otherwise. They've been out to get him for a long time, Eamon. He's been a thorn in the side of the pro-Beijing rulers in Hong Kong. He ran a very successful pro-democracy newspaper, the Apple Daily. 
Um, and he was arrested. First of all, they charged him with illegal assembly. Then they convicted him for alleged fraud. Now they're trying to convict him under this blanket national security law they now have in Hong Kong um, for supposedly colluding with foreign forces. Now, he's been in jail for, for a, n- a number of months uh, awaiting trial, and it's now become a complete mockery of justice. He appointed a British lawyer called Tim Owen to represent him in this trial. Um, the authorities in Hong Kong objected, saying they didn't want a foreign barrister. They didn't want to, because this was a national security trial. It went through all the courts in Hong Kong who threw out the government's attempt to block this uh, lawyer from representing Jimmy Lai. And so what they did was to withdraw, deny the visa to Tim Owen so that he couldn't come to Hong Kong. Uh, what he was, And at the same time, appealed to Beijing to make a ruling on whether or not he should be allowed to, to represent Jimmy Lai. It's now... Uh, because Beijing doesn't move that quickly on these appeals, they've now effectively kicked the trial into next year um, to give time for them to accept, uh, uh, essentially prevent this lawyer from representing Jimmy Lai. So, I mean, it always was a mockery of justice, but now it's become quite transparently so. And uh, the prospect of, of of him getting a fair trial in uh, in Hong Kong are now pretty remote. Yes, and uh, of course he's a very famous totemic figure almost, having survived so long without running foul of their so-called law. The other issue, the COVID retreat, as it's called in the Financial Times this morning, this also is interesting, isn't it? They're clearly confused about how to manage the COVID situation they face. It seems that way, to go from zero COVID and back off in the face of demonstrations, of course the policy was linked to Xi Jinping. Is it unusual in your experience of that country for the government to back off a little bit and change its mind? To this extent, I think it is, Eamon. They have, in the past, there have been the classic carrot and stick approach. You know, you go after protest leaders, but you make a few concessions here and there. But this represents not so much a gear change as a screeching handbrake turn. Um, Having spent three years terrifying the Chinese population about the impact and effect of COVID and imposing on them uh, draconian measures, whether it's all the mass testing, quarantine, lockdowns, um, to suddenly now shift your propaganda to saying, well, actually, this new variant's not that, not so much a problem after all. Um, it's your own responsibility and effectively lifting a lot of the controls that were there, but doing so in a very haphazard way, which is sowing widespread confusion and fear. And um, of course, we still we don't know uh, that the, the, the big fear, of course, is that China is going to be swept with COVID, and it's very yeah. very ill prepared for it because having imposed draconian measures, what they haven't done is prepare in terms of vaccinating sufficient number of elderly, um, building up the health service because there are still very few 
um, ICU intensive care beds for the size of the population. There's a shortage, so we understand, of antivirals. So China's very ill-prepared for an explosion in COVID cases. So it's not only a screeching handbrake turn, it's also um, presenting a real problem for them because it is so badly prepared. And they they, they didn't use this time um, of three years of lockdowns to prepare for a gradual opening. And, and uh, you know, it's sown a lot of confusion and fear. And I take it, given all you've said there, Ian, that the story isn't ended. Far from it. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Chinese New Year is coming up. The year of the rabbit um, begins, I think, the 22nd of of. January. Traditionally, that's the biggest movement of humanity on the planet. Um, hundreds of millions traditionally go home. There may be a big appetite for that this time because they've been cooped up so long because of lockdowns. Yes. And of course, that's uh, guaranteed as a, as a mass spreading event. Um, I think that there will be a lot of pressure. The problem is because they've stopped testing effectively, we don't know how widespread and how fast COVID is spreading, uh, there is a danger of the health service there becoming overwhelmed. How will the government react? Um, will it once again impose even more draconian restrictions? What will that mean for potential protests? It's. I think we've got a very uncertain and potentially volatile two or three months ahead of us there. Yes, and I'm sure it's significant if you can confirm that this Zero COVID policy was linked to the president virtually for life now. Absolutely. This is very much his policy. Yes. But there have been brave, lonely voices in China pointing out that it was increasingly making no sense at all and that sooner or later the country would have to open up and begin to, to live with COVID. Um, but it was... It, for him, it was almost a sign of virility for the party, a yes. sign of China's superiority over the bungling West. And he talked in terms of the people's war. He talked in terms of defeating the virus. Um, yes. And so when you look at that language, which was still prominent just a month or so back, to what we see now, it, it is a fairly major step back and turnaround. Um in a policy that he was so closely identified with. This was this was his thing. And of course, as you've pointed out, the infrastructure to fight it, like ICU beds and indeed their vaccine, which is said not to be as good as the vaccines developed in the West. That's right. Well, the data is only partial because China doesn't like its vaccines being closely examined. But these vaccines are based on inactivated dead viruses. They're very traditional vaccines. They're not the more advanced vaccines that we that are now common uh, in the West. Uh, what measure what measurements we do have, what research that has been done, suggests that yes, they they give protection to a degree. Um, from serious illness and hospitalization, but that protection doesn't last so long and is not as at such a high level as the more advanced Western vaccines. And of course, the big problem is that only two in five of, of the uh, over 80s in China have had a full course of vaccinations. There's a lot of suspicion towards the vaccines. Yes. Um, and this means there are a, a lot of potentially vulnerable people out there. And of course, Xi 
um, has stubbornly refused to import any foreign vaccines. Um, so, you know, that, that, that he's in a corner, really, of his own making. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Now, we did invite you, Ian, to talk to us today about the Belt and Road Initiative, which is something that people may have heard of. I had heard of it, but people generally wouldn't know about this initiative and how significant it is. Could I ask you to tell us about this? It's a, a global infrastructure development strategy. It was adopted by the Chinese government in 2013, and they have invested in nearly 150 countries and international organizations. It's considered a centerpiece as well of Chinese leader Xi Jinping's foreign policy. It's fascinating to me, but can you tell us how important it is. It seems like they have decided to be neo-colonialists and how it works is fascinating. Can you tell us about it and what its objectives are? Yeah, we, we I mean, Belt and Road, it's a clunky title. Belt um, and Braces, it made me think <laughs> yeah, of. <laughs> indeed. And it's supposed to embrace multiple um, silk roads. I think uh, they, they hark back to the days days gone by um digital silk silk road 
uh, maritime Silk Road, um, Arctic Silk Road. There are there are numerous of them, and I, I think that it's become a sort of umbrella term to describe just about everything that China does internationally. But and and it is very closely identified with Xi Jinping. It was something initiated the year after he came to power. Um, at its core is supposedly the, the, a vast infrastructure um, project for the world, um, the idea being that countries, um, and it's not just confined to Asia, it's global, will be blessed with Chinese bridges, roads, railway lines, power stations, and, and much else. Um, but when you start to dig down, it is a classic colonial enterprise, um, it, it's a piece of geopolitical engineering, influence building, if you like. It's yes. China's attempt to impose its own uh, image on the world and its own interests on the world. And in so doing, it's creating, um, th th there's a term, debt trap diplomacy, yes. which which means that countries are being landed with, with enormous and unpayable debts. And this is increasingly the case because of energy prices recently, because of COVID. Um, it has tended to, uh, the, the, the figures I've seen, the latest, is something like 13-odd thousand projects in 165 countries worth almost $900 billion, um, most of it coming from state-owned banks, or companies which are underwritten by the Chinese state. Um, and the countries that China tends to be most comfortable dealing with are kleptocrats or tyrants, uh, which yes. creates its own sort of problems when it comes to the management of your money and getting your money back. But it is, it is global. It is a classic colonial enterprise, and it is running into enormous problems. But it has, at the same time, shaken the West, who are busy trying to um, concoct their own uh, projects uh, for investing in overseas infrastructure, particular in, particularly in poorer countries, to counter the Chinese influence. Yes, a lot of it is based in Africa. Is it a lot that's based in Africa, or, or all of it that's based in Africa? It's all over the place now, Eamon. There is a lot in Africa, and uh, which has been dubbed China's second continent. I mean, China is enormously influential in Africa at the moment, and, and not even uh, the well-publicized bugging by the Chinese of the African National Union in head, which headquarters, which China built in Ethiopia, uh, oh, wow. spoilt the fun because they yeah. are too dependent upon upon China. Um, it's interesting that this week in Washington, there is an African summit. Uh, Biden has invited African leaders to Washington to talk to them about improving relations and explicitly about how to help them and avoid falling into debt trap diplomacy, as, as he's termed it. Um, and you know, there is a growing awareness in Western countries that they've really left the field wide open to China because of uh, the West effectively turning the turning its back on a, a continent like Africa has meant that China was able to move in. And, and you know, let's look from the point of view of African countries: um, cheap capital, um, the, the the promise of vast investment in, in infrastructure is very attractive, especially when you're not getting it from anywhere else, and you don't immediately see the dependencies and the the problems that arise from becoming. Um, 
too in hock with a country like China. Yes, I note that the Tanzanian president, John Magafuli, said that the loan agreements in the Belt and Road Initiative projects in his country were exploitative and awkward. He said that Chinese financiers set tough conditions that can only be accepted by, quote, mad people, because his government was asked to give them a guarantee of 33 years and an extensive lease of 99 years on a port construction. But would it be correct to say this is what the Americans and the British have done in their own way in their own time? They have, I think. I mean, it, it is classically colonial. And I think yeah. through, through, through history, you will see these sort of relationships um, multiple, in multiple occasions. I think where it's changed a little bit is a lot of the multilateral lending that would come from the World Bank or the IMF is very conditional. A lot of it is conditional on standards of transparency, yes. on standards of human rights, labor rights. And of course, none of that applies in the Chinese contracts. And the danger is that, 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 that they're ridden with corruption in a lot of cases. They're not transparent. Uh, and I think that a lot of countries are waking up to this. And a lot of these projects are coming under the microscope globally. Um, and there is a, a lot of pushback. Uh, where we've seen some cases. I mean, there's Hambantota Port, for instance, in Sri Lanka, uh, the Sri Lankans couldn't pay for it. It was built by a uh, Chinese company. Um, and now it's effectively been seized by China. And you're seeing a lot of pushback. Uh, Pakistan is the biggest recipient of Belt and Road funds. And you're seeing a lot of protests around an, a port project there and elsewhere. In Afghanistan and Pakistan, you're seeing terrorist attacks on Chinese interests. Right. Um, uh, there's just this week in Afghanistan, uh, in um, rather in uh, in Pakistan, in in Islamabad, there was a uh, a bomb at a, ho- a Chinese-owned hotel, and I th- I think that there's a lot of pushback, a lot of concern, and the number of loans that are being made under the Belt and Road Initiative have been massively reduced over over recent months. Let me ask you about the perception we have in in the West, or have had over the last 10 years, say, that China was, A, very confident it worked, they had a plan, and they would, along with the United States, form the leadership of the two great blocs. Unlike Russia, for example, China is wealthier, and it has its act together, larger population, of course, in technology, They'd be way ahead of Russia as well. China was the big, efficient, confident, moving forward giant that would eventually confront the United States and be a serious adversary. Have we got that wrong, do you think, in terms of overestimating China? I think we did. Uh, and it's, I, I think... Um, I wouldn't say we got it totally wrong, but we we overplayed it and we we overstressed it. Uh, and I think it was once if described I remember as a rightly, te- Ian, sorry to interrupt you. David Cameron and George Osborne, when they were respectively Prime Minister and Chancellor of the Exchequer in Britain, weren't they very keen 
to develop close relationships with China. Certainly, Angela Merkel and the Germans were too. I think Angela Merkel may have fessed up this week saying she got it all wrong. But there was this idea that they would be wooed and become trading partners and everything would be fine. Yeah, there was a sense that China was the future. You had to embrace China. You had to be there. You had to encourage Chinese investment, that getting close to China in terms of trade and and economically um, was essential to your own economic future. Um, As It's a major economic partner for most countries. Um, And there was, hand in hand with that, a notion that you could affect change through trade um, which didn't happen, hasn't happened, and I don't think will happen. Um, and there was a sense that China's ascendancy to its superpower status was inevitable. I think that's being rethought. I think in many ways we may have even seen peak China, that there is right. now that China has overplayed its hand. It's been overbearing, coming back to the Belt and Road, for instance, and is facing quite considerable pushback. And I think there's a realization that a lot of the deals that were and are done um, are not commercial deals, but have broader strategic purposes behind them. One example, for instance, um, Cosco, which is a big Chinese shipping company, uh, very controversially in Germany, was allowed to buy a stake in the Hamburg port recently. Cosco yes. also bought a controlling state in Piraeus port in Greece, which were presented as part of the um, Belt and Road Initiative. Um, But what wasn't so reported on is Piraeus was in a terrible state. Yes, it was deeply indebted. But Cosgo, at the time of that acquisition, was 10 times more indebted than Piraeus Port. Right. And so the the acquisition made no commercial sense. It was purely a strategic acquisition by the Communist Party because it saw the importance in its broader strategy of having a control over a port like that. But even there, they now have pushback because they're accusing the Chinese investors of not putting the money in that was promised, of uh, causing a lot of environmental damage, of bad labor relations. So it's it's all kind of beginning to go a little bit pear-shaped. Yes. Now, you have vast experience of that region, Ian, therefore a real feel for the Chinese people. Are they predisposed, shall we say, in some way, in their national character, if there is such a thing, to totalitarianism, to regimentation of this kind? Because it it sometimes strikes me, you know, when you see the sort of moves they make, you know, in technology, for example, but in trade as well, that they are a much more sophisticated people, or there is a part of the country that's extremely sophisticated, capable, and wouldn't be ideally suited to the kind of tyranny they're subjected to. You wrote last week in the Sunday Times a piece about the surveillance state, and you've written a book about it. Are they, as a people, predisposed to accept this kind of, of leadership? I don't think so. I th- and I think if you look, for instance, across the, 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 tai- the, the Taiwan Strait, and the, there's a very different yes. system that exists in Taiwan, a very open, freewheeling, liberal democracy, um, where people 
elections are major festivals and celebrations. So I don't think it's right to say that that democracy is somehow incompatible with the Chinese character. Um, I think that there is a persuasive argument that the Chinese government makes to its people that um, they can exchange their in, in exchange for keeping their democratic ambitions in check, um, that they will have economic opportunities, stability, security, um, the usual things that the Communist Party comes out with. And I dare yes. say there are a lot of people in China who would take that view that the party has brought stability, it's brought prosperity. Um, the problem is, of course, when that's no longer the case. Yes. And I think we saw in the protests last month against zero COVID, uh, some incredible innovation in the way that people will, well, courage and innovation, courage that brought people to the streets in spite yes. of being confronted with this um, incredible surveillance state and incredible innovation which people showed in the way that they organized themselves, in the way that they distributed videos, um, photographs, um, in a manner that pretty much overwhelmed the surveillance apparatus, at least for a while. Right. Uh, they were struggling to keep up with all the censorship. Um, so I think that there, there is certainly... Um, a, a rebellious element there. And I think it would be rather foolhardy of the Chinese government to think that they can keep the population in check by you know, appealing to their ability to um, provide security, stability, and economic growth. Yes, and uh, we have a correspondent that we use very often in Taiwan. I mean, there are 23 million people there. It seems to be a flourishing democracy. but. I understand, and maybe you can confirm this, that looking at what the Chinese did to Hong Kong and did it without any resistance from Britain, who had signed an, an agreement with Margaret Thatcher, of all people. But the idea that they would do that in Hong Kong, I'm told that Taiwan is much, much closer to their heart and their desires getting Taiwan back. It is part of China's sovereign territory, and it is, we're led to believe by some people, imminent. And the next big, I mean, it would maybe make Ukraine look, you know, not as bad as it looks now, if they make that move. Is that a, a correct understanding of it, that in a sentence, Taiwan is much closer to their hearts than Hong Kong was? It probably matters more in the sense that it is central to the way China sees itself, and it's central to the way Xi Jinping in particular, his Chinese dream, his vision of the rejuvenation of the nation. Yes. Um, Taiwan is, is very much central to that, um, and he's made it clear that he wants to take Taiwan um, by force if it cannot be achieved peacefully. Whether that's imminent, I'm not so sure. And that would come back to the sort of lessons that China may or may not have taken from the conflict in in, yes. in Ukraine, which, of course, is where we've seen a, a country which on paper is somewhat inferior to what we thought the Russians were capable of, but through strength of character and, and resilience and sheer determination and uh, has, and of course, 
helped by considerable weaponry from the West, has been able not only to resist Russia, but um, in places push them back and 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 defeat them. Yeah. And I think there will be those in China who will be looking very closely at that. But clearly, that the longer they leave it, the more the stronger Taiwan becomes. I don't mean just in terms of militarily and in terms of the ability, the willingness of others to defend it, but just in terms of its own national character. Um, yes. And I, I'm very cautious about using language like recover Taiwan because you know, the Communist Party of China has never ruled Taiwan. Uh, yes. you know, the island has a very rich and independent culture. It's been, uh, it, it has legally as well as morally, you could argue that uh, that, that the country has a right to self to self rule, and and that a lot of the Chinese claims over Taiwan uh, don't really hold up to close scrutiny. Yes, and of course, in the region as well as the United States, they have people who have said they will help defend Taiwan. I suppose at the bottom of or at the root of the thinking of the Chinese and indeed the Russians was that the West was decadent, weak, divided wouldn't get its act together. It may be all of those things, Ian, but it did get its act together, as you just suggested. It, it did, and, and you're absolutely right, Eamon, that that view of the West in decline, yes. terminal decline and decadent, was, it very much underpins both Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin's view of, view of the world. Yes. And I think that part of the problem, looking at Xi Jinping, is it's, it's his own measures it's the way that he is his own threats towards taiwan that have emboldened and encouraged those in taiwan that want nothing to do with the communist party yes um you know the, there's hardly been a great effort to win hearts and minds and and by by threatening taiwan uh, you know if you make if you make enemies of Taiwan in the same way that China seems has seemed intent on making enemies of the world. It's not very surprising if they then turn around and behave that way. Right. Ian, it's a pleasure as always to talk to you and an education as well. We're very, very grateful to you for joining us today. And Ian's latest book, The Fire of the Dragon, China's New Cold War, is was published in August. It's really, really good fascinating book to read. So if you're thinking of buying something for someone at Christmas, I suggest you find out more about China. Some of it is pretty scary stuff. We're grateful to Ian Williams for joining us today. We're grateful to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.